Again, good morning. It is good to be here. I want to mention something. I mentioned it last week uh, that we're now listing the birthdays and anniversaries uh, in our bulletin. If we don't have yours for the month, like this is November, let us know so that we can insert that. Uh, we didn't have Casey Sebastian's. Uh, she wasn't in there uh, last week. She turned 50, and uh, her birthday was this last Saturday. We had a great uh, celebration with her. And you don't look a day over like 48. So, uh, no, she's not that old. So, anyway. <laughs> but, and then we had another one of our young men. There's many. I'm just going to point the ones that are out this, this morning. Uh, Braden, stand up. When I came here December four years ago, Braden was like really short. And pudgy, and he's not anymore. He's just growing up, all of them. And, and he turned 13 uh, Thursday, correct? So uh, happy birthday. Yeah, now that you've been sufficiently embarrassed. And uh, it is good. I ask that you turn your attention to, uh, to our handout. We're going to be in the 22nd Psalm uh, this morning. I'm going to be reading a passage out of John chapter 4 and then go to the 22nd Psalm. Uh, but it's a moment in the ministry of Jesus that will certainly apply to our lesson this morning. This uh, part four uh, from the 22nd Psalm, the Song of the Messiah, the Song of the, the Messiah. So but before we go there, uh, John chapter 4, verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Uh, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Uh, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Uh, the Samaritan woman therefore said to her, uh, said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, uh, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan? A uh, Samaritan woman. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Uh, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well, and drank of it himself, and his sons, and his cattle. Jesus answered and said, uh, said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall never thirst again. Or everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Read that again. Uh, the water that I shall give to him shall become in him a well of water bringing, springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I'll not be hungry, uh, or I'll not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have, said, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you uh, now live or have is not your husband. This uh, this you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem 
shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming. An hour is coming. And now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. I mentioned this is part four that we've, this is the fourth week that we've been in this 22nd Psalm is the Psalm of the Messiah. And if you look, refer back to the uh, handout, you'll see and be reminded that that, uh, that Psalm's broken up into four parts. And, uh, and so as you go through those, uh, there's a question, there's a dilemma, there's a, there's a burden, a request, and there's a response. And that just is a form of very quick recap. That first one is the, the words that Jesus, he cried out loudly. In fact, he sang out loudly from the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And, uh, you know, many people for many years, uh, maybe reading that for the first time, have wondered about that. But make no doubt, 2,000 years ago on that, uh, on that place called the Skull, that, that Golgotha, that place of death, uh, those people knew. They knew exactly uh, what he was crying out loudly, singing out loudly. They knew that it was the song of the Messiah. And what established it was, yes, the statement, the question, where are you, God? But it was the yets. And I mentioned that. You go through all these responses. My God, my God, where art thou? I mean, why have you forsaken me? And, and, and he says, yet. And the yet supersedes. It, it overrules. It intercedes. And he says, he says remember, I'm holy. I'm holy. The holiness of God will always supersede, intercede, overwhelm uh, any, any, any moment in your life where you feel separate and apart and that God has forsaken you. He would go on to say, I'm a worm, I'm despised of men. And then the psalmist, David, would write, yet God gave you life. He, gave, he mirrored the, the words of the 139th psalm. You and I were formed in secret, that we were wonderfully made, we were knitted together, even before our days were ordained. So it doesn't matter how depressed you are, how, what the attack that you're under, how depraved you may feel, there's a greater truth. And that is God gave you life. That third dilemma and problem was, burden was, I'm surrounded by enemies. So the Song of the Messiah deals with three things. God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? I'm despised, and I'm surrounded by enemies. But thou art never far from me. God will never leave you nor forsake you. And so the Song of the Messiah establishes three things. He's holy. He gave us life, and he'll never leave us nor forsake us. And then there's the response, and we, we started dealing with that last week. The very first response, the statement of that response, beginning in verse 22, is I'll tell of thy name to my brethren. 
And we've talked about that. You can go to Acts chapter 4. Uh, when Peter and John have to go before the same Sanhedrin council for the healing uh, of, of someone, uh, they would tell them. Their response said, hey, listen, by no other name, by no other name will anyone be saved other than the name of Jesus. And so we talked about that, the 107th Psalm. The, that great Psalm that says, let me, let me tell, let me tell people of the loving kindness of God. No matter what my circumstances are, lost in the desert, a prisoner, I will tell people of the loving kindness of God. Now, today, something so unique in this passage, and I made mention of it last week. If you go anywhere else in Scripture, verse 22 to verse 31, this it says, so I'll tell what? I'll, well, I'll tell of thy name to my brethren. But then to who? And if you start looking at this, and I had to just narrow this down. Um, I'm going to tell of thy name to my brethren, and that's the first designation, but then you go and you start looking at this list, and if you check this handout, you're going to see something that is absolutely, uh, it's just awe-inspiring. I, I mentioned to the kids this morning, and I've said this, and I remember the first time that I was confronted with this. If you, if you are familiar with God's Word, uh, it's safe to say the first renderings, writings of it, uh, were 3,700 years ago. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we can safely say, you know, some 15 to 1,700 years ago it was recorded. And then you just move forward. So from the first five books of the Bible till uh, Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, you've got, you know, uh, over 1,000 years of prophetic history and psalms and wisdom literature, all the things that the Old Testament is. Major prophets, minor prophets, the history of Israel, you have it all. And then 2,000 years ago, you know, we have the gospel. We have the birth of Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and then the inspiration of the New Testament. And so, uh, and that was, you know, that began with us with the birth of Christ. Uh, and then shortly after his death, burial, and resurrection, the uh, assimilation of the New Testament. Now, what, I want you to capture something. And uh, a guy by the name of David Eisenhower, he's a scholar, world-renowned. Well, he's actually, he's a physicist, and uh, he did all the math on this, and it's interesting. It's an interesting read. Uh, he said that if, if you were to uh, take any piece of literature that has ever existed, ever, you go to the Rosetta Stone, any, anything that any Socrates wrote or any great philosopher, any of the history of the Roman Empire, any history of any empire prior to the Roman Empire, any of the Greek writings, uh, even some of the historic things that we can find in the Eastern empires, what is now known as China. And then you move it forward all the way to now. Do you know what the statistical probabilities of creating uh, what the Bible is, do you know what? Every piece of literature that's ever been written, that's ever been assimilated, that's ever been written and uh, chronicled and recorded and re-recorded, under the conditions of the Bible, what is accomplished in the Bible 
It's in, it's in the trillions, trillions, trillions to, to one. Let me, let me explain that. All the history that's ever been written cannot even remotely compare to all the dynamics of Scripture. Well, what do you mean? So you have three different languages, 1,700 years of history. Uh, there's absolutely no, what, no semblance of modern technology of publishing or capabilities, none whatsoever. You had an individual, ink, papyra, an oral tradition, scribes, the writing, the rewriting, the writing, the rewriting, the, and you didn't have any way to telegraph forward through the centuries to anyone. Now that's just a start, but then there's another thing that takes place. You couldn't, you couldn't put, uh, there's not a computer program today. Now, Eisenhower, he, he asserts this. He says, you can take a modern piece of literature today and try to move it forward 1,700 years, even in today's technology. And somebody would write something with a series of facts or a series of stories or a series of histories in a modern technology. Then to preserve that 1,700 years from now or 3,500 years from now, and have the symmetry, the harmony, the, the harmony that the Bible has, again, even in modern culture, it, 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 the probabilities would be huh, almost unachievable. Do you understand that? We have, all have a cell phone. I imagine everybody here has got a cell phone. And all the technology that we have in a cell phone. And the ability to uh, store data, assimilate data. Do you understand, and this 22nd Psalm, I'm going to illustrate it. Do you understand the probabilities? Now, it's going to, I'm going to let the point be made through Scripture and just as we go through this list of somebody sitting down, David, in this case, you know, 3,000 years ago, writing something, and he's putting together a list. He's not. He wouldn't be able to communicate with the future prophets that would come along, or the gospel writers. There wasn't just stored information that you could Google something by. And there is, a, there is an elementary harmony and that is... I'm having a hard time trying to illustrate to you the significance of this. I'm going to let the list, I'm going to try it. Because as I just did in this simple little handout, I tried to track something David wrote, the Song of the Messiah. I tried to track, kind of give you some cross-reference stuff here. So when he talks about the brethren, you could go to the book of Acts that was written over a thousand years later and with no technology, and you can see the term brethren used over and over and over and over and over again. And if you want to do the research to what the significance was, you could. Now again, try to think of the problem of even something like that happening. And I just gave you a few as we go through this list. The Bible is such, there's such a perfect harmony in it that existed in a very primitive time that has not and cannot has never been matched 
with man and all of his modern technology. This is, when we say that the Bible is inspired by God, 2 Timothy 3.16, by the Spirit of God, do we really understand that? This is, to, before we read this list, it needs to be said, but here is the list. I'll tell of thy name to my brethren. Well, I could just preach one sermon on that. In the midst of the assembly, I'll praise thee. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel, for he's not despised nor poured the affliction of the afflicted, neither is he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. This book, this response in this psalm is written in the past tense, the present tense, and the future tense. And you start looking at who is being addressed. The brethren, the assembly, those who fear the Lord, the descendants of Jacob, the descendants of Israel, the abhorred, the afflicted. All these are, you can just find the designations, Genesis through Revelation, perfect harmony. From thee comes my praise, verse 25, in the great assembly. There's that assembly again. By the way, the assembly, you know who you and I are? We're the assembly. So 2,000 years or 1,000 years before uh, Christ would establish his church according to his word in Matthew 16, and it being established on the day of Pentecost, there was a word for you and I. And it was the assembly. The Greek word is ekklesia, the called out, the assembled. We'll get back to that. Assembled. We have assembled on the first day of the week. The brethren have assembled on the first day of the week. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. Those who fear him. The afflicted again, verse 26, shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him. What does the Bible have to say about the afflicted and those who seek him? Genesis through Revelation. The entire Bible has to deal with the afflicted and those who seek him, those who fear him. Listen to this. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Those who seek him. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord. His first sermon, the Gospel of Mark, was repent for the kingdom of heaven is, is now here. He would say in the Sermon of the Mount, seek ye first his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. Kingdom and kingdom and kingdom and kingdom. Genesis through Revelation. He rules over all the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul. You see the significance of that? Even the dead. Even the dead. You ever seen such a list compiled? You're, even the dead will say his name. I gave you some examples. Even the dead will speak his name. Posterity, your descendants, will serve him. Serve him. It'll be told of the, told of the Lord of the coming generation. They will come and well declare his righteousness to a people who will be born by the way, ultimately that was speaking about you and I, not just the generations, but the preserved generations that would come to be you and I. And what do we do? 
we tell of the name of Jesus that he has performed it. Now, very quickly, very quickly. I asked the kids this morning. I had done some research, um, American Family Research and James Dobson, and they talked about generationally. Um, and this is a very sad thing. If you're reading this song or you're singing this song and you're familiar with this song, at this point you would say, uh, immediately you'd say, well, the response then is uh, people will praise him and worship him. They'll praise him and worship Obviously, one of the responses is evangelism to tell the name through praise and worship, at least one dimension of that. And if you read it, I did a poor job of reading it, but if you read it the way I think that it was intended to be read and sung, this is awe-inspiring. And the research that has come out with this generation, this generation, more, even more than the me generation, the X generation, the, this generation, do you know the saddest thing about this generation? And it's true. They're not amazed at anything. I asked him this morning, tell me something you're amazed at. I don't know. More than any other generation. I can very clearly remember. I was old enough to remember when uh, the landing of the moon took place. I, I was young. It was in the 60s. I was in elementary, but I remember that. That was amazing. I remember the first time I saw the northern lights. I remember the first time when I pulled up to the rim of the Grand Canyon. It's awe-inspiring. I remember these things. I remember uh, the birth of my son. It was amazing. It was amazing. This generation, this is what they have. I mean, I'm serious. I'm not making any of this up. Now, I want you to think about spiritual warfare. One of the things that Satan, who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, is to take our sense of awe away from us, our sense of amazing. Amazing grace. Is it really? I mean, is it really? Nothing sadder than a group of Christians assembling on a Sunday wearily singing Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace starts out with kind of... It's no longer amazing, is it? This psalm, the response, the response to the Messiah, is this, it's amazing. I'm going to praise you in the midst of the assembly. What do you think that sounded like? What do you think that should sound like? My praise in the great assembly. What do you think? And it's gotten worse. You know, they call the generation that fought World War II the greatest generation. I remember so many things growing up that were just amazing to me. This generation, what's amazing? If you don't think that there's some spiritual warfare 
And now, church, what I'm going to have to tell you is very important here. There's only one event that's amazing. There's only one event that's amazing. And that's the event of the Messiah. And in the creation, Paul would write to the Romans in chapter 1, he said, the invisible attributes of God have now been made known through the creation. Well, we ought to, everything that we see, the sun coming up, the change of the seasons, the stars at night, the landscape of his creation, it'll only have so much awe to it, but it'll never run out of awe if we understand it in light of Jesus Christ and him crucified. But that's one. So what about this? Um, standing in awe. When's the last time you really feared something? I shared with them again. I said, I remember it was in the 70s and we had gas rationing. Vietnam War was over and now uh, those guys over in Russia had an, an atomic weapon. And I remember very much being thinking, Oh my, there were movies being made out. You know, this generation doesn't really fear anything either. Not really. Do you think the people, the descendants of Jacob, the assembly, the praisers, do you think we fear? In light of this song, where's our fear? Solomon would write in Proverbs, he said that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Do we live our lives like a people in the assembly and as we leave the assembly that fear God? Because the song of the Messiah says there's a response that's established. Not just required, but it's an established response. Now it has to do with this. It has to do with understanding our descendants. It, it has to do with all these things. One of the things that it has to do with is our affliction. Because he would say, the people that stand in awe, all the descendants of Israel, the people that fear him and praise him, the brethren that, that tell of his name in the assembly, they understood something. I'm not sure we understand this, folks. There's a prescription here. There's a for, there's a reason. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he, he heard. I mentioned this last week and I gave you some examples there right out of the scriptures. In Luke chapter 4 and Matthew 11. In Luke chapter 4, at the beginning of his ministry, he would go into the temple and he would read this passage out of, Messiah, out of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim relief to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he would requote that when John, who was in prison, in his affliction, would sin. He said, are you really the Messiah? The cousin. By the way, you know, I mentioned this to somebody this week. Who was the first one to recognize Jesus as the Messiah? 
John, his cousin, an unborn fetus. I hate that word fetus. We use it scientifically to support the murder of a child, and we just do that. John the Baptist in his fetus form in the womb recognized the Messiah. But when he was older and he's in prison, he asked him, are you the one? And Jesus, again. Here's the point of this. How, what has your response in your life been to your understanding of the Messiah? I mean, what is it? I worry for this generation because they have a lower sense of awe and amazing and fear. Awe and amazing and fear. They've seen so many uh, techno stuff and fireworks and videos and whatever you can, Hollywood can falsely produce to create something that might have happened. And so why would you be afraid of anything? <laughs> Seriously, why would you even be amazed at anything? And certainly Satan doesn't want you to be afraid or <laughs> amazed at anything. And, uh, I think, I know, one of the reasons that we're not telling and we're not maybe as fearful or awestruck about all that the Messiah did, has done, and is doing is because we've never really looked at ourselves as someone who is afflicted. Maybe we have. Or somebody who has been despised or abhorred. I mean, I mentioned this last week. He who is forgiven little loves little, was thankful for little. Anyone who's forgiven much is, loves much. Maybe, maybe Christianity has been so weakly sold. It's been sold so weakly. It's like softly sold. That the weight, the weighing of it, it, it it's the Matthew 13. It's the parable of the sower of the seed. Some seed falls beside the road, and then somebody will automatically pick that up with joy, but a little trouble comes along. You know what a little trouble ought to do in the life of a Christian? It ought to inspire you. You mentioned it this morning, Don. I mean, it ought to inspire you. I mean, it ought. And then when a lot of trouble comes along, you ought to be like Paul in prison. Don't be worried about my circumstances. I've learned the secret to be content in every circumstance. Even members of the Praetorian Guard are coming to know the Lord. Doesn't matter what's happening to me. A little trouble means a lot of glory. A lot of trouble means more glory. More glory to, the, to God. My life here is short. This life isn't about me. We've made worship about me. And not him and what he's done. Then let me ask you this. By the way, he mentions assembly, 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 assembly. I, I, I have to tell you how important in response, and I mean this. I don't know what your level of fear is or what you're amazed by or how you've weighed the trouble in your life and 
and seeing God's role in that. But how important is this to you? Not mean it. Because the response to the song of the Messiah is I'm going to assemble. I'm going to assemble. I've said this before and I'm going to say it even more clearly. There's no way, I don't believe, that if you were in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, in his presence, that you could say, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian or to be saved. I don't believe you could utter those words out of your mouth. I just do not. It's not a biblical truth. It's a biblical lie. God does not ask. It's some, the Bible doesn't lie. But when I say it's something we lie using the Bible, that's what Satan does, doesn't he? Garden. He's in the garden. Eve, did God really say you shouldn't eat that? Yeah, he did say that. Ah, that's just because he didn't want you to be like him. Oh, new, new interpretation. <laughs> it satisfies my desires. So I, she saw it, she desired it, she took it, she ate. Here's, here's another lie from Satan. And it's a lie from Satan. You don't have to go to church to worship. You can worship outside of church. Or you can worship at the ballpark, the ballpark and the ball game and the ball. Or you can worship in the creation because you think it's beautiful and it's there for you and it's not there to honor God. And I mean this. He doesn't ask much, does he? And Satan has given us so many things that we can avoid the assembly. It's just there. Here's one more. I'm going to do one more. This will hit you where the boy. This is the response now. Verse 25, from thee comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. Do you feel like you owe anybody anything? And why? Do you feel like anybody owes you anything? And why? The response to the Savior in the song of the Messiah, the way we respond to the Savior who's holy and gave us life and who will never leave us nor forsake us, as we assemble, we tell his name, we tell it to our brethren in the midst of the assembly. We've got a, a lineage that's a part of who we are. Uh, we're awestruck. We know what he's done for us. And then you know what? In the assembly. We don't do an offering. We have an offertory box back there. And if you want to give, give. Um, but I'm going to ask you something. Do you, it's a financial, by the way, the Hebrew, I will pay my vows before those who fear him. By the way, if you do the history, that was kind of one of the verses they used to establish a passing of the plate, where the assembly, where people would pay their, you know, you could, there's scholars that may uh, see the validity of that, but there is a statement here. 
that has to do with you and I personally. How much do you and I owe the Lord? And why? I love the kids. Madeline gave me a five-star answer. She did. I don't know if she fully understood what she said, but it rang a bell for me. Now, all of them, by the way, parents, I said, who do you, do you owe anybody anything? And every one of them said, yeah, I owe my mom and my dad. And I owe my grandparents. So they said that, parents. They may never tell you that, but they said that. What do you owe them for? Was it they feed me and they clothe me? Okay. Great stuff. Madeline says, we don't owe anybody anything. Now, she went on to explain that. And then, but she, went, she wasn't being disrespectful. She's got a bright mind in spite of who her father is. <laughs> Praise God for Ashley. No. Uh, they both have great minds. But he said, I shall pay my vows. I, so when do you owe somebody something? Now, according to the word of God in this setting, in the song of the Messiah, is I'm going to pay my vows. Let me ask you another thing. Have you ever made a vow to God? And if you haven't, why? This individual was so moved that he knew what God had done for him in, in, in the times that he felt like God had forsaken him, the times that he felt like a worm, the times that he felt alone and he was reminded God is holy, he gave me life, he's never left me nor forsaken me, I could only do one thing. I could praise his name in the assembly amongst my brethren to the descendants. I could stand in awe and fear. And you better know something. I made some vows to him. I have made some vows to God. And Jesus would say, listen, you need to be real careful. Let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. I'm going to tell you something. In that, in that language, it's okay to say, no, I'm not going to do this. And yes, I'm going to do this. And what couldn't you say to him? Listen, I want my marriage to be yours. I'm going to vow my marriage to be yours. I want my children to be yours. I want my heart to be yours. I want my money to be yours. I want my everything to be yours. I want the things that come out of my mouth to be yours. I vow those things to you. We stand up here and we, a husband and a wife say a vow. Well, does it mean anything? Shouldn't it? And if it's by in relationship to everything that God has done for you and I, shouldn't we make a yes and a no to him? Oh. Now, we, pro- we, we can't keep it. And God knows you can't keep that. We're like, Paul, why do I do the very thing I don't want to do? The good that I would do, I find that I can't. Oh, man. What a wretched man that I am. He'll free me from this body of death. But therefore now there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But nevertheless, that doesn't negate. You and I ought to have a heart for him. that says, I'm going to tell you all about him. I'm going to praise his name in the assembly. The scripture says, do not forsake the assembling of the saints. You're either going to live up to that or you're not. You're either going to come up with an excuse that Satan will provide and it, it appeals to your flesh, or you're going to, in this group here, Hey, man, I'm preaching to the choir. Look at what the pandemic has done. 
I love this time in my history in the pulpit more than any other time in my, my history in the pulpit. I go with the reason I read that John chapter 4 passage to you. Jesus said, There's a time coming, and the true worshipers will come. You know what the pandemic has done? No matter what you think about it, it's given the casual Christian more of an excuse to be less than even casual. Really has. People that come 15, 20 times a year. If I'm wrong, please, please. Now, I understand there are people who are genuinely in fear. I'm thankful that we have a medium like a Facebook live feed where we can, you know, so we got some older folks that are struggling with their health and we have people that I don't want to be responsible for giving somebody. I get that. And God knows their heart. I'm not talking about those people. And I couldn't judge a person's heart. But I believe with all of my heart, there are people who've decided, and maybe they haven't spoken out loud, but in, in the core of their heart, there's a decision that's been made. You know, it's really easy not to go to church now. A symbol. That's a hard thing. But when you read this, something ought to be happening in you and I. If I really believe that God is, in fact, the provider of a Messiah, and in the deepest, darkest, most depressed places in my life, something happens, and it's a response. I'm going to run to church. I'm going to sing praises. I'm going to tell the name of Jesus. I'm going to stand in awe. I'm going to pay my vows. I ought to have vows. If you don't have vows to God, ask yourself why. Probably because you've not ever understood what he did for you and I in our affliction and in and, 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 and all those things that he, he did hear us. And he didn't hide from us. I have to stop here. There's so much more. But when you read the list of those who would, those that will respond to the Savior that is holy and gave us life and has never left us or forsaken us, please read this section. Please. See, see if there's something in my life that if there's something in my life that I've not understood in relationship to what God has done for me, please read it. Let it challenge you. David, the same man who wrote this psalm, in the 51st psalm, he said that God desires a broken heart and a contrite spirit. I can tell you as you read the response in that 22nd Psalm, it's the response of people that their heart has been broken. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and he preached the first gospel sermon. He said, men of Israel, you can connect it to this Psalm, descendants of Jacob, brethren in the great assembly on the Passover celebration, he said, men of Israel, be sure of one thing, this Jesus of Nazareth, 
You killed him. You killed him. And they cried out with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, what must we do? And he said, repent. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because of the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for you and for all the generations that are coming after you. The response of the saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, if we lack fear, Father, I ask that you increase it. I know that your word says that perfect love drives out fear. And Father, I am convinced that as my love for you has grown, my fear has lessened. But I praise you. I praise you for letting me fear you. I pray that this generation that is being raised up, these future descendants, Father, that, that they would understand that there is truly one, one and only one to be amazed at and stand in awe of, and that is you. I pray that you would increase in our hearts a mind.